Hello friends, Wayne Stiles here, and I'm excited to host a Bible conference next year on the topic of waiting on God from the life of Joseph in Genesis. The dates are June 12 through 15, 2025, and the conference is going to be at the beautiful Glen Erie Conference Center in Colorado Springs. Fernando Ortega will be joining us to lead in worship each session and to give a concert one evening. More information and registration is going to be coming soon, but mark your calendar for June 12 through 15, 2025. This episode of Live the Bible is brought to you by Walking the Bible Lands. If you haven't been to Israel yet or you'd like to relive your tour, these on-site videos are the next best thing to being there. Check it out at walkingthebiblelands.com. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Stiles and this is the weekly podcast that helps you connect the Bible to your life. In this episode, we read from a book of the Bible that many of us have heard of but not spent much time in, and that's the book of Lamentations. This great little book, the prophet Jeremiah, has witnessed the destruction of his country and has seen the hopelessness that it has caused. How can you have hope for a future when literally everything seems hopeless? Well, the good news is our hope is based on the faithfulness of God, not on our faithfulness. I'll be back in a little bit with more, but for now, let's hear this week's podcast. I heard several years ago about a, um, a group of folks up in Michigan who decided to start a project to expose some of the ridiculous labels that we have to read on products that basically cover companies from being sued. And some of them are amazing. And they, they actually started a competition each year in which you can submit, you can go to their website and submit, you know, a wacky warning label is what they call them. And some of the winners over the last few years are worth mentioning. Have you ever seen anything like, anything like these? There's a label on a baby stroller that warns, remove child before folding. <laughs> yeah, you've got to be told about this. There's a brass fishing lure with a three-pronged hook on the end that warns, harmful if swallowed. <laughs> yeah. A popular scooter for children, this product moves when used. A flushable toilet, a flushable toilet brush. Interesting product. Flushable toilet brush warns do not use for personal hygiene. <laughs> a label on an electric hand blender is promoted for use in quote blipping blipping. <laughs> Trying to read too fast here. Blending, whipping, chopping, and dicing, and then it warns, never remove food or other items from the blades while the product is operating. <laughs> Your fingers will blip right off there. A household iron warns, don't, never iron clothes while they're being worn. <laughs> A hairdryer reads, never use hairdryer while sleeping. How could you? A carpenter's electric drill warns this product is not intended for use as a dental drill. 
about a three-eighths inch drill bit to do the job there. Massage chair, this one's great, and in fact I left part of it off because anyway. It says, never, never force any body part into the backrest while the rollers are moving. <laughs> okay, a cardboard car, car shield, the sunscreen over the top, keeps uh, sun off the dashboard. It says, do not drive with sunshield in place. A label on a handheld massager advises consumers not to use while sleeping or unconscious. A cartridge for a laser printer, do not eat toner. Like, that's the first thing you want to do, right, when, when you see it. And this one was great. The label on a bottle of drain cleaner warns, quote, if you do not understand or cannot read all instructions, cautions, and warnings, do not use this product. <laughs> that is great. Because if you can't read it, how would you know? You can't read it, you can't read it. You know, do we really need irons that tell us don't iron your clothes while you're wearing them? Do we really need hair dryers that say don't use this while you're sleeping? Well, evidently we do because some people have, uh, have done it and have sued companies for it. To us, it's just common sense. The reason that the wacky warning labels are wacky is because it's common sense you don't do these things. Well, I'm sure that's how the prophet Jeremiah felt when God issued his warning labels to the people of Judah. God sent Jeremiah along with a lot of prophets to, to Judah to give God's common sense warnings. And he basically, Jeremiah was basically reminding Israel of what God had told them all along. He set it up in Deuteronomy this way. I'm going to let you go into the promised land. You're going to get to live in houses that you didn't build and, and eat from vineyards that you didn't plant, drink from cisterns that you didn't dig. You're basically moving into model homes, and, and you're going to be blessed. But if you disobey me, I will take you out of the land, and you will not be blessed. God set up a very simple system. If you obey me, you're blessed. If you disobey me, you'll be cursed. And part of that involves being taken out of the land, out of the promised land. And that is exactly what Jeremiah uh, prophesied, and what Jeremiah saw. Um, what was absolute basic common sense, the people ignored, and they went ahead and folded the baby up right with the stroller. And God said, I told you that when this happened, this is what I was going to do. A famine took over the city, the food was gone, and in July 586 B.C., the Babylonian army finally breached Jerusalem's walls, burned the temple, burned the king's palace, all major buildings. They tore down the walls, and they hauled off most of the population in exile to Babylon. They were taken out of the land just like God said they would be done, that it would be done. And the beautiful temple of Solomon, the beautiful city of David, now was a pile of charred rocks. God's people we're dealing with the, the backwash of their, of their own decisions. And Jeremiah saw it all. There are a few things more painful in life than dealing with the regret of your own decisions. It's painful dealing with the regret of other people's decisions in your lives. If other people have hurt you or have made decisions that have permanently affected either your childhood or your, uh, your grown-up years, 
or uh, even if it's a government that's made a law, someone else has made a decision, you've got to live with it, that's hard. But it's even harder when you are the one that has made that decision and you are living with the regret, not only of the effects of it, but now realizing that you are the one that has made that decision that, that caused this to happen. It's, it's painful. And Jeremiah's, the people in Jeremiah's day were beginning to sense that, that that was so, that the pain that they were experiencing was a pain of their own doing. When we do that and we walk our own way, we, and we're lying in what you could say the rubble or the ashes of our own life, it's very easy to feel like God is very far away. After all, God could have stopped it like he's done a thousand times up to now. He could have stepped in. He could have had someone warn us uh, this, this last time. But instead, God says, I'll just let you do what you want to do. And what I've protected you from up to this point, now you're going to learn, not by instruction, but by experience, that what I'm telling you is true. In those moments, it's very difficult to feel any sense of hope. But God is not done with us, which is the wonderful truth of the scriptures. Turn with me to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations, right after Jeremiah, which is right after Isaiah, we are entering into a section of the Bible that has that little white strip. If you were to hold your, <laughs> if you were to hold your Bible up like this, and if it doesn't have the gold leaf on it, you just kind of look at it. The part that's the white strip down is the prophets, because we're so seldom in the prophets. And the reason we're so seldom in the prophets is because, frankly, we don't know what they're talking about. And what, they're, what they often talk about is something that seems like it's pretty irrelevant. You know, talking about foreign nations and, you know, where's Edom, by the way? And, and who cares? Because even if it was significant back then, that was thousands of years ago, and I really have a lot to do on my to-do list today. Why in the world should I care about the prophets? Why should we care about lamentations? What does that even mean, the book of lamentations? Well, I'll tell you the good news up front. The book of lamentations is a book of lamenting. It's a book of weeping. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet by and large because of this book of lamentations. And the good news is God is not done with us. You may feel that you have made decisions in life that have that have your life at a place to where God basically wants to look just look at the results of your life and say, "You know what? It's better if I just flush." <laughs> but God isn't has no desire to flush. The Father is not looking at the mess that we've made of our lives and crossing his arms and tapping his toe. Like a, like a parent that is belittling us, but rather he is more like the prodigal father. He was constantly, uh, the, the father of the prodigal, who was constantly looking for the son to come running back, and the father has his arms wide open. Lamentations is going to show us this is true. There is hope even for the hopeless. I don't know where you are today. You may be in a very good place in your walk with God, or you may be in a very bad place in your life altogether. But whether you're in a good place or a bad place, there are always times that we struggle with memories. 
those, those times in the quietness of our, of our heart, whether we're on a walk or we see a movie or we see a scene in a movie or we hear a conversation or it can trig- be triggered any number of ways and we never expect it. It often hits us blindside and so often, unfortunately, it happens in the holidays because most of the, the, uh, the, the, the struggle that we've dealt with in life comes from family and family decisions and holidays just seem to, seem to stir that up. As opposed to it being times of joy, they are often times of lamenting. Isn't that ironic? Well, Lamentations gives us a good bit of encouragement. A, a lament is a sad song that comes from emotions of grief, either from death or from deep regret. And Jeremiah writes Lamentations after the fall of Jerusalem. So we're not going to read the first couple of chapters, but I think we've summed it up well enough, and we'll talk a little bit more about just the the unity of the whole book. But let's look right in chapter 3, starting just at verse 1, and then we'll get a little more of the context. Jeremiah writes, I am the man who has seen affliction because because of the rod of his wrath. Jeremiah says he has seen affliction. About 900 years, Israel has known God's basic warning labels given in Deuteronomy, what I mentioned up front. If you obey me, I bless you. If you disobey me, I'll curse you. And that has indeed been the fallout that's happened. So Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of the nation when he says that he and everybody else knows why this has happened. It has happened because, the affliction has happened because of the rod of God's wrath. It's a matter of justice, he says. The emotions associated with with this regret, he talks about now starting verse 2. Look at verse 2. We'll read down to verse 9. It says, He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged me and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell, like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. Jeremiah is explaining the emotion of how God's people are feeling right after the destruction of Jerusalem. And it isn't nice. These are emotions that are difficult to read because they seem to, I don't know, they seem to sort of not make God sound like a nice guy. We want God to be our Santa Claus to be our Father Christmas. We don't want God to be the one carrying the belt who disciplines us when we sin. We only want God's grace. We never want to deal with God's justice. And yet Jeremiah says that is exactly what we're dealing with. God didn't answer their prayers because the motive behind the prayer up to this point was not repentance. It was simply freedom from pain. God wants us to grow, and when we ask him to help us do that, and he allows us to struggle, sometimes we think, God, why are you causing me to struggle? When he simply is answering our request to grow. 
God's priority for us is holiness, not just happiness. And when we make the decision to walk away other than God's way, then he lets the fallout occur, and then it brings us back into line of holiness. Notice how God is proactive in the discipline. These words that we read here, these verses, that talks about God turning and God causing and God taking the initiative to do exactly what he said he would do and to discipline Israel for their sin. Jeremiah goes on, verse 10. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I have become a laughingstock to all my people, their mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. It's a difficult place to be. There's no more difficult place to be in life than what Jeremiah has just described. You may have been there before. I've been there before. You may be there now. And it is a hard place to be. Verse 18 is a hard verse to read. My strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. I am completely out of strength. I can't go on. And frankly, I don't even have any hope in God. Where is there hope for those in situations like this? Thomas Chalmers once wrote, The grand essentials of happiness are something to do, something to love, and something to hope for. But what do you do when those grand essentials are gone? What is there to do when you feel like Jeremiah feels in this passage? When your tears are bitter, when your soul has no peace, and when you're out of hope. This feeling of hopelessness and weakness is actually a very good thing because it brings us to the point where we can only go up. (laughs) It becomes an asset for us because then it becomes a motivation to do something that maybe we've never done with a wholehearted devotion before. Look at verse 19. Jeremiah writes, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. There is a humility that comes from God allowing you to get to this place. When you are emotionally wasted, when you are out of strength, when you are out of hope, it brings you to a place of bowing down in humility. C.S. Lewis once noted, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. You see, it's a good thing to be aware of the evil that's within us because it makes us humble. It brings us to God, who is our only source of hope. Now, Jeremiah's arrangement of the whole book, I don't know if you've ever tried to figure out the the, uh, arrangement of the book of Jeremiah, the big, long book of Jeremiah. It's hard. 
I mean, it's like there's not an arrangement there that's much. Uh, there is, but it's not easy to see. Lamentations, on the other hand, f- uh, breaks out really nicely. There are five poems, you might say, or five laments, and they're broken down by the five chapters in there. And the way Hebrew typically is written is when it's written in a form called a chiasm. We've talked about this before, but a chiasm, chi is from the Greek letter, what looks like an X to us. And so there's this beginning, and then there's a middle, and then there's an end that sort of is like the beginning. And the way that the, that the Hebrew text is written is such that it's arranged to show whatever's in the center is what gets the most emphasis. So when you look at these five different poems or laments and lamentations, chapter 3, which is the middle one, gets the emphasis. The way that the whole thing is written emphasizes chapter 3. And if you look at the arrangement of Jeremiah another way, it's very subtle, but there are 13 little sections that are divided by voice. Like in the beginning, it's, it talks about her, 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 and then there's a section that's first person, I, 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 and then another one, he and she. So there's various uh, sections of it that are divided by voice, and there are 13 of those. The middle one, or the seventh one, again, is in chapter 3. In fact, it's the very verses that we're about to read. So, in other words, if we were Hebrew readers and we were reading through the Hebrew text, it would be as if God has taken his highlighter and has opened his highlighter and has begun to highlight the text that we're about to read. Because the text that we're about to read is the center of lamentations. It is the most central part, and it is the part that God doesn't want us to miss as we're reading through this book, which is why it's the text that we're reading through today, because it is so important. When you are at a place where you are wasted, when your hope is gone, when there's nothing that you can do but bow down before God in the dirt, what in the world do you do? How do you have hope when you are in a hopeless situation? Look at verse 21. The highlighted section begins. Jeremiah says, This I recall to my mind. Therefore... I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. What an incredible contrast to what we just read. How does Jeremiah turn the corner? He quits looking at himself. He quits looking at his own situation and him being the one who speaks for the nation, not just Jeremiah personally, but for for Judah or for the Hebrews themselves, the Jews. They quit looking at themselves and say, wait a minute, I recall this as well. Therefore, I have hope. God is faithful. And he mentions this word, Loving kindnesses. That is not a word we use. Loving kindnesses. It's a very uh, churchy word. We hear it in church a lot. We don't ever use it in our normal speaking. The New International Version translates it a little bit more of a paraphrase. New, the New International Version just says God's great love. In verse 22, the word loving kindnesses, it's not just loving kindness, but it's plural, loving kindnesses. And so... When it says great love in the NIV, you might just mark, mark there that this is a plural. 
it's not just great love. You can almost say great loves that we're talking about the abundant love of God because of God's loving kindness. The word there, loving kindness, is the Hebrew word chesed. It means a loyal love, a, a love based on relationship, a love based on covenant. And it's a love that God has made the choice to have a covenant with us or with, with Israel. And if you have a pencil or a pen and you don't mind underlining in your Bible, there are a couple of words that I would encourage you to underline. The first, or actually three words, in verse 22, underline both times the word never occurs. See in verse 22? Uh, it's not, a, yeah. Verse 22, the, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. Underline never. Next line, his compassions never fail. And then the next line, verse 23, they are new every morning, the word every. Never, never, and every. Never, never, and every have no exception. There's no exception to never. Hey everyone, Wayne here. How would you like to see the places Jesus walked for real? Well, you can, but time is running short. The deadline is the end of this month to sign up for my upcoming tour to Israel and Egypt for the fall of 2020. The good news is there is still a room for you. Going to the Bible lands will change the way you read the Bible, I'm certain. Check out all the details of the tour at waynestyles.com slash tours. And now, back to the message. Never, never, and every. Never, never, and every have no exception. There's no exception to never. There's no exception to every. The Lord's kindnesses indeed never cease. Yeah, but what about what I did back in night? Never. They never cease. His compassions never fail. Well, yeah, you don't understand. I really blew it. His compassions never fail. Yesterday was a terrible day. You can't believe what I did. His mercies are new every morning. Every morning. And aren't we glad? Because we need them every morning. In fact, we could use them every meal, several times a day. The principle that jumps out of the text for us here as a great application for our lives is simply this. Our hope is based on the great faithfulness of God, not on our faithfulness. Our hope is based on the great faithfulness of God, not on our faithfulness. If we focus on our faithfulness, then we are verses 1 through 20. That's what our faithfulness gives us, both emotionally and as far as hope, theologically. But when we focus on the faithfulness of God, great is His faithfulness. We even got a song about that. We sing, great is thy faithfulness. And it's focusing on the great mercy of God in the context of our sin. It's not just God's faithfulness, you know, great is thy faithfulness. We sing at Thanksgiving, everybody pass the turkey and yams. It's great is thy faithfulness in the context of our rebellious, sinful hearts. Because his mercies are new every morning. His compassion never fails. His loving kindness never fails. 
What is it that God is loyal to or faithful to in this context? He's faithful to his covenant with them. The covenant that he had made with them was that if you obey, I bless you. If you disobey, I curse you and all that. But the, the good part is they just saw that God is faithful because when they disobeyed, he cursed them. So what's the good news? If they will obey, what will he do? He will bless them. It swings both ways. And that's why we're told in this text, this I recall to mind, God's, God's faithfulness is great. His loving kindnesses never cease. His compassions never fail. His faithfulness is wonderful. And then we can say, the Lord is my portion. Then we can say, verse 24, I have hope in him. We have hope because God's love never fails. I love it. Verse 25, Jeremiah continues. He says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. In other words, it's okay for us to deal with the fallout of our bad decisions because it teaches us what we would never learn otherwise. But even in that, God doesn't crush us beyond despair. He crushes us to the point of being effective, to the point where we'll be humble, and then as soon as we repent... He begins to lift us up. Charles Spurgeon once said, I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. We grow in pain, don't we? Pain is a great teacher. It gets our attention. He is faithful to forgive and he is faithful to restore those who come to him in humility. Notice it says, Jeremiah writes, the Lord is good to those who wait. The word wait, this Hebrew term means literally the straining of the mind in a certain direction with an expectant attitude. This isn't the type of waiting or hoping, like when we say, well, I hope it rains. Like maybe it will, maybe it won't. I mean, the forecast says it will, but that doesn't mean it will. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. That's not a biblical hope. A biblical hope is hoping in something that you know is going to happen. Like eventually, it's going to be 12 o'clock and we get to go to lunch. In fact, it's 12 o'clock in like 12 minutes. So let's keep moving. Look at the progression. It's a wonderful progression. Verse 18. Look at verse 18. Remember this? He says, my strength has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. In other words, here we are, no hope. But now look, verse 21. This I recall to mine, therefore I have hope. Verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. And then finally, verse 29. Let him put his mouth in the dust, perhaps there is hope. This, this individual has gone from a place of no hope to hope in the Lord, and then finally, well, what do you know? Maybe there is hope after all. 
And there absolutely is because of God's grace. And finally, a verse that puts hardship into wonderful perspective, verse 39. I don't want to, I'll just skip that far. Let's go ahead and read verse, verse 31. Uh, it says, for the Lord will not reject forever. Here's why there's hope. For the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit of those things the Lord does not approve. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? In other words, God brings us to this point of of repentance, but he doesn't crush us. He has mercy even in his wrath. In wrath, remember mercy, Habakkuk said. It's the same idea. Now look at verse 39. Boy, this is something next time you're struggling and you're, you're wondering, God, why don't you make my life better? Look at verse 39. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Ooh, that is a hard verse to read. <laughs> but isn't it true that if we think about it from that perspective, and it is true, that perspective tells us that we ha- even though our lives are hard, we've got it a lot better than we could have it if God dealt with us as our sins deserve. If God dealt with us as our sins deserve, we have it a lot harder than we have it now. Why should anybody complain in view of our sins? We shouldn't. And so verse 40 gives us the final challenge. Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. So here's a principle, a second principle. When God deals kindly with us, it's always on the basis of grace, not justice. God's kindness in our lives is always based on his loving kindness, his grace. It's not based on justice. He is merciful. I have written a blog for a long time. For me, it feels like a long time. It's been, I guess, about 13 years since I've blogged pretty much every week for 13 years. And after all that writing, Google grabs it and, you know, search engines grab it and people begin to read it. And I have had some amazing conversations, you know, typing with people all over the world. And thousands, literally. I mean, I don't want to give you numbers because I'm not supposed to, you know, we just heard that sermon about being humble. So... (laughs) But a lot of people have read, read the blog and comment. And there is one post in particular. It's called, When God Takes Something Away From You. And it talks about Job and how Job experienced that. But, but one of the things that I do on my blog is allow comments for people to write comments and even ask a question, what do you think about this? And people write, evidently that is a phrase that people search for because I have hundreds of comments on this post, and some of them will break your heart. 
the stories that people tell about what God has taken what God has taken away from them, and the blame that they that they uh, assign to God. And sometimes, I mean, you can go on there and read it. It's right there, public for everybody to read. But the conversations that I get to have with people are such a privilege. And at the same time, they are so heartbreaking when the Lord still has not grabbed a hold of their heart to let them turn around and see that the afflictions that they're dealing with in their life are meant to draw them to him. And they're not intended for them to blame him for all that's gone wrong. But anyway, there was one, I, I tried to think about several that I could read to you, but there's one in particular of an Asian man named Yokichi. I don't know where he lives. I, I look at the script, and I guess I could figure out what the script was of where his, little, his name is there. But uh, so it, it looks, I can't tell Korean much apart from, uh, but it sort of looks Korean. Anyway, but this, this man, Yokichi, he, he, he and I were engaging with one another a few times, and he said, um, he said, I just want to drop by and tell you, quote, he says, I just want to drop by and tell you that I finally met Jesus today. He said, my long search for happiness was over when Christ made me realize that he had been with me all along. Words can't describe how wonderful and merciful he is. Praise the name of the Lord. You know, I love that because God, God's word is powerful. And God's word, uh, what did he do in this young man's life to read through something in the life of Job and maybe some of the other comments and the interactions that he and I were able to have? But he, he talked about some very painful things that he experienced. And God turned his life around because he got him to the place of verse 20. He got him to the place where his face was in the dirt, and finally he realized, because of the grace of God, I have hope. I read this story about a woman who grew up very poor, and um, I want to read, read her words to you. These are her own words. She says, I grew up in a cold water flat, but I married a man who had money. He took me up to a place where I had flowers, I had gardens, I had grass, and it was wonderful. We had children, and then suddenly I became physically sick. I went to the hospital, and the doctors ran all sorts of tests. One night, the doctor came into my room, and with a long look on his face, he said, I'm sorry to tell you this, your liver has stopped working. I said, Doctor, wait a minute, are you telling me that I'm dying? He said, I can't tell you any more than that. Your liver has stopped working. We've done everything we can to start it. And he walked out. And she says, and I knew I was dying. I was so weak, I had to feel my way along the corridor down to the chapel of the hospital. I wanted to tell God off. I wanted to tell him, you are a shyster. You've been passing yourself off as a loving God for 2,000 years. That every time anybody begins, it's actually longer than that. Anytime I wanted to get happy, you pull the rug out from under me. I wanted this to be a face-to-face -face telling off of God. And just as I got to the center aisle of the chapel, I tripped. I swooned and I fainted. And as I looked up, there stenciled along the step into the sanctuary where the altar is, I saw the words, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. She says, I know that God spoke to me that moment. 
there with my head down, folded my arms in the center of the chapel, repeating, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. A sinner. I surrendered to God and found my way back to my hospital bed, weak as I was. The next morning, after the doctor ran blood tests and the urinalysis and so forth, he said, your liver has started working again. We don't know why. We don't know why it stopped. We don't know why it started. And I said in my heart, but I know. God has brought me to the brink of disaster just to get me to turn my life over to him. I love that story, and we all love that story, but livers don't always start working again when we, when we turn our lives over to God. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes God doesn't take the thorn away, even though we pray multiple times. But this must, much is true. Our hardship draws us close to God and motivates us in Jeremiah's words, as he says in verse 40, let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. Those words for examine, the word examine means to search out. The word probe means to explore. It's, it's even used in the book of Job to mine for, for something, to dig and, and mine for it. Let's, let's examine and probe our ways. That's more than just reading. That's really pondering and laying ourselves open before the Lord to examine and probe our ways. And here's the funny thing. If we do that, we're going to have to do the second part of the verse and let us return to the Lord. Because an honest examination, an honest probing of our ways shows our need that we need to have a humble attitude before God and to come to him. And I love the commands here. Not only are we told to command, uh, to examine, and to probe, we're also told to return. Isn't that great? That God doesn't just say, look, I want to make you feel bad about who you are. He doesn't. He says, I only want you to be aware of who you are so that you can turn and realize who I am and come to me. This is true for us as Christians, too, by the way. This is not just an evangelistic message, because those of us who trust in Christ, we can walk off the path, and it can happen so fast if we don't keep our, our, our hand in the hand of the Lord as we're, as we're walking along. We can turn off the path so quickly if we don't walk with him. But the good news is that we can remember those never-nevers and always or whatever they were. Yeah, never cease, never cease every morning. Never fails. Those are good. That reminds us of the New Testament principles that are true as well, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None, none at all. There's no condemnation for you at all if you're in Christ. This is the good news. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing can separate us. So it doesn't matter what we do. And if we have confessed our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, and we are right back in fellowship with him. His mercy is new every morning. His faithfulness is great. What a great, great book. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give great thanks to you for this chapter. Lamentations 3. We live in the other chapters so often where we are so aware of our weakness 
and of our failings and of the fallout in our lives as a result of those things. It's so easy to see our failures and so difficult, Lord, to imagine that you would be so gracious as to invite us to return to you, as to make a way for us to return to you, to examine and probe our ways and then return to the Lord. It's right there in the text, and you've given that as a command and as an invitation. Father, we pray if there are any who are here today that do not yet know if they were to die at this moment, if they would go to heaven or if they would not, that you would open up their heart to realize that their sin would keep them out, but your loving kindness is great, your mercy is new, and that you have provided a way through Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose again to pay for that sin and that they would believe that and that they would be forgiven. And for those of us that already believe that and are constantly wooed by the the lies of the world and the philosophies of our age and the doubts that nag in the back of our heart, are we really forgiven? That you would bring us to this text and to the, the texts across the Bible that remind us of the truth, that our faith is based on the Bible and not on what we feel. And the Bible clearly tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're grateful, and we pray in his name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. The principles Jeremiah has taught us in Lamentations are essential for us to remember every day, especially on those days when we feel hopeless. Our hope is based on the great faithfulness of God and not on our faithfulness. When God deals kindly with us, it's always on the basis of His grace, not justice. And aren't we glad? Next week, we see hope rising from the bones of hopelessness. The prophet Ezekiel shows us what it will be like when God does what only God can do. And the good news is, God can do it in our lives. That's next. Until then, live the Bible. Live the Bible.